0: On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about the fact that Paul Bernardo is getting another parole hearing. Now, yeah, a lot of people excited about that. And I say that, of course, with my tongue in my cheek. Tim Danson, the lawyer for the French and Mahaffey families, joins us to talk about it. We're also talking about education. What have we learned through the pandemic about education? Paul Bennett will be here to talk about that. And the big hit in the hockey game, the other night, the controversial hit. What, what does this say about where the sport is, the reaction, the way people are dealing with this and talking about it? What does this say about where hockey has or has not changed? We'll talk about all that. Stay with us.
1: Today on the Scott Bradley Show on 900 CHML.
0: In this part of the world, in Hamilton, Burlington, Niagara, Golden Horseshoe area, there is, I would argue, uh, among the most notorious and hated names the two that would rise to the top would be Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka. I, I, certainly in our lifetime, if this generation of this era, I can't imagine that any other two people rise to the same level of just spite that people feel for what they did. If you don't know who they are, you're new or you're young, read up on it. But for everyone else, it, it's impossible not to know. Well, the reason I bring this up is because we learned yesterday that that on June 22nd, Paul Bernardo, who is serving life in prison, um, will get his second go at a parole hearing, not long after he got his first crack at it. This, to the surprise of I'm sure nobody, doesn't rest well with the families of his victims, doesn't rest well with a lot of people who say, what in the world is going on? Based on what he did and what he was found guilty of, why is he not just rotting in prison for the rest of his life? Well, I want to bring in Tim Danson, longtime lawyer for the French and Mahaffey families, um, who is preparing the families again to go through this process. Tim, thanks so much for the time tonight. I appreciate it. Yeah, Good to be with you. As I was thinking about this, I want to dive into a bunch of issues. But as I was thinking about this, first and foremost, one thing kept coming to my mind, and that is, do your clients really need To prepare victim impact statements and make the case again in front of the parole board for why Paul Bernardo shouldn't get out, because I just, I, 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 not being facetious or or flip or anything, I just I can't for the life of me imagine the parole board would be crazy enough to allow him out, would it?
2: Well, um, we don't take anything for granted. It's interesting if if I was on your show as an independent uh, legal expert, I'd probably say to you that the chances of Paul Bernardo uh, being released on parole. Is somewhere between zero and nil. Uh, but when you're the lawyer responsible um, for taking care of the family's interests, um, we can't take anything for granted. Um, we can't be complacent. So we are putting the best case forward. And um, it does have an impact, it has a significant impact on the parole board uh, when they hear directly from the victims and they hear their perspective. Um, so uh, I think the answer to your question is that. Um, that while I'm confident that that we'll be successful and his application will be um, denied, um, we take nothing for granted. Uh, The the reason for my confidence is is also when you have regard to the decision that they made uh, some two and a half years ago, um, and that was that after 26 years in prison, um, they concluded that he had no insight into what he had done and his offenses and what... With the implications of them and you know my view is is that uh, if he gained no insight um, after twenty six years in prison he certainly isn't going to gain uh, the necessary insight and rehabilitation in the following you know two and a half years and the 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 the, the, the medical uh... evidence back then and i suspect it will be the same this time is that they had concluded that uh, Paul Bernardo had uh, deviant sexual interests and that he had met uh, the diagnostic criteria for sexual sadism, voyeurism, and paraphilia. Uh, they said they concluded that he met the criteria for narcissistic personality disorder, and that he met the requirements for a diagnosis of psychopathy. And the fact of the matter is is that there is no cure. For uh, sexual sadists and psychopaths, so unless there's some kind of miracle medical breakthrough, um, you know, it it it's it, it, there's been absolutely no change, and he should never be released. And interestingly, that's consistent with the findings of one of the most respected and distinguished judges in our country. Um, then the Associate Chief Justice Patrick Lesage, then became Chief Justice of Ontario, who was the trial judge. And and he said, and, and, and I'll quote for you because it's strong, uh, he said, quote, Mr. Bernardo, you have no right ever to be released. The behavioral restraint that you require is jail. You require it, in my view, for the rest of your natural life. You are a sexually sadistic psychopath. And anyone who knows the, the Chief Justice, um, as I said, not only one of the most distinguished and learned judges in this country, um, he is a man of, uh, you know, he's, he's more reserved, and this language is particularly potent for coming from someone as so distinguished as himself. So um, he knew, as the whole country knew uh, over a quarter of a century ago, how dangerous Paul Bernardo is,
0: and uh, that hasn't uh, changed one bit. I think it's stunning to a lot of people to consider that this year will be the anniversary. Anniversary is a bad word, I understand, but it will be 30 years since Leslie Mahaffey was abducted and tortured and murdered. It's just, it seems unbelievable it's been that long already, but here we are.
1: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Tim, we're talking about an issue of parole here. But I'm wondering if the story is not more about sentence for the broader public is not about sentencing in general the fact that someone who did what Paul Bernardo did has the opportunity for a parole hearing I think would probably make a lot of people say maybe we need to reform sentencing rules so this doesn't happen in the future
2: well um, I mean it's a very important question and and uh, we have to take into account uh, obviously some of the a constitutional principles uh, with respect to these types of matters. Personally, I find that the um, what works out as a rule of thumb that people like Paul Bernardo, people convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life imprisonment, but they have they're eligible for parole after 25 years. My view is, after their first hearing after 25 years, that the next hearing should not be every two years, it, which just revictimizes the 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 victims and it serves no useful purpose in my view. Uh, at a minimum it should be at least five years. I would even go out beyond five years, but again, taking into account the legal principles and constitutional law, uh it, we may not be able to get past that. But at least every five years is a lot better than two years. And um and if for somehow there's some medical breakthrough and they can bring Evidence forward um, for an earlier hearing. You could put that into the legislation, but the rule should not be every every uh, two years. I think five six years would be uh, more appropriate. And I'm I have no doubt that it would be constitutionally valid to, to do that. Um, well, speaking know, if, of
0: evidence, let me ask you about that evidence because I was reading this and I didn't realize this. He actually has a right as the perpetrator, as the convicted criminal. That his evidence does not have to be presented to you ahead of this, so he can show up with a surprise bit of evidence and try and work that i I, I don't understand how people who are serving time for what he did have rights and have privacy rights
2: well i uh, you, uh, you're you're preaching to the converted i feel I have felt strong about this for for a long time. We brought uh, what's known as an ATIP application, an accessed information request um, to get his institutional files. Uh, we did it in combination with uh, going after the same c- type of records from Craig Monroe and, and Clinton Gale, who m- who both murdered uh, p- uh, police officers, Toronto police officers. And um, what bothers me is that when we make these access to information requests, um, we get turned down on the basis. We'll deal with Paul Bernardo on the basis of his privacy rights. Um, you know, for someone who has seen uh, uh, the, the videotapes, uh, and other evidence uh, to think about his privacy rights. As to uh, when you think about what he, he these unspeakable crimes that he committed against these teenage girls is appalling to me. But but more it significantly, at least from a legal perspective, is that Paul Bernardo is, the parole hearings are public hearings, and Paul Bernardo is asking for a public remedy. He's asking the parole board to relieve him from the consequences, effectively the consequences, of his life sentence and to be reintegrated back into the community. Every aspect of what this parole hearing is about and the relief being sought is public. So the notion of privacy interests is Hmm. one that is completely untenable in my view. And we did bring an application. We've appealed that to the federal court. We argued it in February. Uh, we're still waiting for the decision. Um, obviously, the decision will have enormous implications. But our view is is that if Paul Bernardo wants to be relieved from the consequences of his life sentence, the public, not just uh, the the Frenches and the, the mahafis but the general public, um, uh, have an absolute right to know and see the evidence upon which he relies, and maybe the parole board relies upon. Uh, as to whether or not to uh, release him. That's what we call accountability. If you were to say to, uh, to, to trial judges across Canada, we're about to say, well, you know, something, I we're going to close the courts down. The public has no right to see what we do every day in our court system. Just trust us. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, it just wouldn't happen. And, w- and it makes no sense to me that we have a completely open court justice system, completely transparent system, in our civil and criminal justice system but when it comes to public parole hearings we we see it entirely different the only thing we learn is during the course of the parole hearing when the two panel members will be questioning bernardo and then we start finding out what what kind of evidence that they've got you know in the institutional files or what they choose to put in the decision now, in fairness to the parole board, the panel we had two and a half years ago, they worked very hard they were um, they had they had, they knew the file and they asked very good questions and obviously they came to the right conclusion we 're going to have a different panel this time, uh, but the principle is important it 's called an open court process, and the parole board has to be held as accountable as 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 any judge in the criminal and civil justice system so um, I think we're entitled to it. We'll see what the what the court says. My guess is is that given the significance of our application, it'll probably end up in the Supreme Court of Canada. But the system has to change, and the public has a right to know.
0: Tim, I only have twenty seconds here, and I apologize for that. But every I know this. We're talking about Paul Bernardo and his parole hearing. But every two or three times over the past decade, we've had Carla Homolka pop up in the news as being spotted in Montreal or spotted here or there. Do the families have anything in place right now that protect them? from the possibility of running into her.
2: No. Um, you know, she's done her 12 years. We did have uh, for a while uh, post-sentence uh, conditions put on to mitigate the danger she poses, but um no, she's uh, she's free and clear of the law in that respect and uh you know, god forbid if they ever ran into her, uh that would be uh traumatic, but um uh there's nothing that we can do at least legally, nothing we can do.
0: Tim Danson, the uh, parole hearing is June 22nd. I have no doubt that we'll be hearing an awful lot about this and when it happens as well. Uh, Really appreciate you taking a few minutes today. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Thank you very much.
1: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900CHML.
0: You surely heard earlier this week that the provincial government has announced that schools will now remain closed until September. The risk, they say, of COVID being transmitted is just too high. Let's not take the risk. We've only got a few weeks left. So September will be back. No more school in class this year. Well, this means we've gone roughly 16 months now with sporadic in-class instruction stretches. Yes, a lot of time, no. It also means that we've learned some things about our education system. Strengths of the system, weaknesses of the system, and and some lingering questions about the future of the system. My next guest has compiled a list of a number of headlines. From this, from what we've learned or what we need to know. Five headlines about what we've learned from the pandemic and education. He is Canada's leading education consultant and expert. His name is Paul Bennett. He's the director of Schoolhouse Consulting. He joins us now. Paul, thanks for joining me tonight.
3: Great to be with you again, Scott.
0: Uh, you have come up with a list of five and I think they're really interesting. Now, other people may come up with different ones, but I think your list is, uh, is pretty compelling and I want to go through these if we can of the What you've come up with is the five headlines to study, ruminate over, contemplate from this. And let's start with number one. You call it the myth and illusion of 21st century learning. What does that mean? Well, your
3: listeners who follow education will know that there was a precursor to 21st century learning. It was called 20th century learning, surfaced (laughs) in the 1980s, and it essentially said that uh, with the internet coming on stream and with a knowledge and digital economy uh, remembering things wasn't important you could just google it have you heard that phrase a few uh, times. why would you mo- why would you bother uh, internalizing things a knowledge rich curriculum wasn't the uh, what was the way to the future and in in uh, it was going to be a technology driven school system so um, Twenty years later, 25 years later, we were struck in the middle of a pandemic with a crisis. The entire school system shut down. Where was 20th, 21st century learning? Nowhere. It was just theory practiced by leaders in the system. And uh, they had had conferences. They'd networked with all the leading producers of technology. They had produced, um, they'd integrated technology But when it was all said and done, we were left with a tremendous crisis, everyone in a state of shock, future shock in March of 2020. My first lesson is the critical issue that it was a myth and an illusion that we were in the age of 21st century learning.
0: Would we have been ready in five years because people were talking about this and having these conferences you're talking about? Or was this, do you believe, inevitable that we were never going to be really pushed into being ready until we had to be? Because up until then, it was just all just, you know, pie in the sky. Well, what if? It takes a crisis, is the
3: phrase. And what is amazing is this crisis has done more for educational change than millions and millions of words and websites for the last 20 years there's nothing like a global crisis to shake you out of what you're in and to basically confront what's happened what's happened is all of a sudden teachers and students and families were face to face through intermediate forms using technology and they had to adapt they had to figure it out on their own Isn't it amazing how school boards disappeared, how teachers' unions were playing catch-up, how teachers had a lot of autonomy, and so did parents. And everyone was kind of in it together. But out of a crisis has come something incredible, which is we didn't really have the 21st century skills we needed.
0: Which is stunning when you consider that the students who are in school now have grown up with this their entire life. What they know is this. And yet we still had this giant gap when it came down to ex, ex, to bringing it in and to uh, to executing what we needed to do. Number two on your list, student learning loss. I think we've talked about this before, but uh, this I think this is a huge one about the amount of education they have missed out on. But what do you mean by student learning loss?
3: Well, Ontario has had disrupted education, meaning online or various versions of kids' out of school, and denied in-person learning for, will it be, 26 weeks over the, the last 16 months. Do you realize when you organize a course as a teacher, you plan for 30 weeks? So they have essentially missed an entire year of learning. Now, anyone who says that they can pick it up on their own simply isn't reading the evidence. What we know from the United States where there is serious research, is that the kids are between 8 and 12 months behind in critical skills. There's one study out of the University of Alberta by George Giorgio on reading, and he puts it at between 8 and 12 months behind in basic reading. We need more studies in Canada, particularly Ontario, to track how serious it is. Here's another thing. There's a bias in Ontario education it was all about student well-being, nothing about learning. And so we were uh. ill-equipped to respond to the, the major challenge where they're not learning anything.
0: But Paul, I have not heard, and maybe I've just missed it. I mean, your ear is closer to the railway tracks on this than mine. I have not heard one educator, administrator, school board, nobody suggesting a solution to this by, say, holding kids back or repeating grades or doing anything. Everything I've heard is they're ready, move them to the next grade. This sounds like you're saying the opposite.
3: Oh, I'm absolutely saying that the solution to this is not social promotion. That is not the answer to this it always was, move them on to the next grade. This is too serious. And by the way, I'm not the only one. There's a professor at Western uh, who is, is really adamant on this, and uh, she has been uh, she put out a study this week, and there are others, um, Kelly Gallagher-McKay, they're, they're starting to talk about student learning loss. But we're late to the game, and we do need to look at it. Now, it's not fair either, because the Ontario government... I hate to say this, has already put in place summer learning programs. They put eighty-five million dollars into upgraded summer learning programs. They're going to hire teachers now. It's too little, too late, but they are responding, and they are focusing on the two areas that I've identified: learning for reading and math. So it's they're late to the game, but it is happening.
1: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on nine hundred chml.
0: Paul, student absenteeism and disengagement is number three on your list. You're pointing out that we actually are seeing students with more absenteeism. I don't know how that's possible. When you're home and you don't even have to get dressed to go to school, how can they be absent more? They're tuning out and
3: they're disengaging. Here's the reality. They're spending hours a day online and they have had repeated scheduling changes. And those in the middle school to the high school have chosen other things that they spend their time on most teachers will tell you that they look out at the class on zoom and there are a lot of kids who don't have their faces shown because they're simply pretending to be there there's many many there's many uh, cases now where we've got chronic absenteeism as far north as north bay they did a study and they that the students had missed 16 or more days and that's the benchmark for chronic absenteeism and that was thousands and thousands of students So when you ask teachers and you ask them, how much of a commitment are you asking, they say, well, we expect them to log on for an hour or two a day. Uh, But the truth of the matter is there might be as many as a quarter of all students that have essentially disengaged. They're in and out. And one of the professors I cited, Kelly Gallagher-McKay of Wilfrid Laurier, has said that uh, they're so deeply disengaged that we may be facing a long-term problem of trying to win them back to the public school system.
0: Well, I can say this, that if you ask a bunch of people who have grown up on laptops and tablets and TV and everything else to sit in front of a screen and the option is to pull up YouTube or pull up games or whatever, I don't think we can be too surprised if a number of them, when you talk about being disengaged, if some of them do that. I know, I hate to admit it, I would have. And, you know, that's, that's, it's the temptation is enormous for that. I I certainly get it. Number four, we got to keep moving. Number four, the blurring of parent and teacher roles. Would I assume that with this one, we're talking largely about elementary and middle school parents and students?
3: Schooling has essentially been integrated into the household more than ever before. When you have 23 weeks of home learning, the family is definitely involved and you're right more at the elementary school level. But parents in the, of teenagers and those in their graduating year are exceedingly frustrated. And there's family conflicts, there's pressure, there's uh, lots of stresses. We've got reports of increased domestic violence. And uh, we've unearthed reported problems associated with the rapid pivots to home learning and the incredible burden it imposes upon parents many parents consider that they've been the teachers for the last 16 months. So my, uh, I believe there's a study out of the University of Alberta which influenced me greatly by uh, Bonnie Stelmack, uh for the Parents Association of, uh, of Alberta that really hits the nail on the head. We have a blurring of the responsibilities between parents and teachers. Lots of conflicts. We've learned a lot but that will be a legacy of the pandemic.
0: But doesn't that mean that when students go back to school in the fall, that the gap between those who had engaged parents and those who didn't is gonna be even bigger than it otherwise might've been?
3: Absolutely. But what we're learning though, is the more engaged parents got, the higher the level of family stress and the more challenges. That uh, study in Alberta is very revealing. It just shows how parents were exasperated Put lots of pressure on their kids, and it caused a lot of domestic disharmony. What we've learned is we had a blurring of the commonly accepted boundaries between parents, families, and schools.
0: And finally, uh, the need for future-proof learning. How, I mean, how do we do this? Because you started by saying, until we had a crisis, we didn't know we ne- we, we didn't know what we were going to do. We needed a crisis to make this thing happen. Uh, How do we know what to build for the future? Because the next crisis won't be exactly the same as this one.
3: Yes. Well, what we know is what we were planning on doing didn't work. So we've got a choice between in-person and virtual learning. We now know that in-person learning is preferable. We also know that we need to do everything we can to restore teaching to the center of the enterprise. No longer is it acceptable to have teaching on the side. Teachers are facilitators. There's nothing but learning facility. We need to have teachers who are capable of stepping up and teaching in those situations. What is future-proof learning? It was coined by um, cognitive science expert Paul A. Kirshner, and essentially it's this. Forget about 21st century uh, holistic skills and competency-based student graduation standards. Here's what matters. The acquisition of knowledge skills and motivations necessary to continue to learn in a stable and enduring way in a rapidly changing world. In other words, the foundations that we need are those of reading and math and thinking. If we don't get those right, we are not going to serve the pandemic generation well.
0: I'm going to get in trouble because I'm already over time, but I want to ask you one more thing from something you just raised. And that is you say we have teachers who need to be able to do this. Does that not indicate we need to have, or is that suggesting we need to have more testing and weed out teachers that can't do this?
3: I don't know whether I'd prepare to go that far, but we do need to change the dialogue. We need to say we're trying to teach kids to be capable, future-proof learning. We have street-proofing, future-proof. When this happens again, do you have the skills? Do you have the capacities? Do you have the competencies to think your way out? Do you have the knowledge? Do you, can you read? Can you analyze things? Can you compute? And can you figure out the future? Because you need those skills to navigate whatever future uh, that we end up
0: inheriting. This is all going to be posted uh, in a piece on, in the conversation, correct? Yes, I believe it'll be out this week. Look for that online. Paul, Ben, always love having you on. Thanks for taking time today. Oh, real pleasure.
1: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: So last night I was out for a bit and uh, my son sends me a uh, text message with a video that just says, wow. And I I think wow was more of a holy cow or uh uh-oh. But, you know, wow it was easy to type. And it was a video of the hit from the game last night, the Winnipeg Jets and Montreal Canadiens, that Mark Scheifele, who is a skill player usually, just absolutely destroyed a Montreal Canadian player named Jake Evans. And this has now led to the NHL again, again, finding itself in the midst of, of a massive discussion about what is okay, what isn't okay, what discipline should be levied, what discipline shouldn't be levied. Is it part of the game? Is it not part of the game? This seems to be happening a lot lately. I want to bring in Sean Fitzgerald. He is a senior national writer with The Athletic. He is author of the amazing book, Before the Lights Go Out, which is about hockey, as it turns out. Uh, Sean, thanks for doing this today. Mr. Radley, good to speak with you again. You as well. And let me, before we dive into this, when you first, I don't know if you were watching the game last night or if you just saw the replays. I know yep, you nope, have yep, at least I seen the watching. replays. What was your immediate reaction to it? Bad hit or good hit? On first viewing. My immediate reaction? I don't know yeah. what
4: CRTC regulations are for having a discussion on publicly regulated <laughs>
0: airwaves a quarter
4: after seven on a weeknight. Um, what am I allowed to say?
0: uh okay so let's find any <laughs> euphemism for the bad words I- i'm guessing there was, there you were not i mean there was some internal profanity because i mean <laughs> you had a guy skating
4: 190 feet and just obliterating um an opponent who was prone uh defenseless not looking no reasonable expectation to get smoked like that in a situation like that with with an empty net and 57 seconds left you're not supposed to expect something like that like you The argument of, oh, you have to be braced, you have to have your head up, it doesn't apply here. And to see that and to see the violence of that collision and then to realize that it was Mark Shifley, who is, you know, has a reputation of being, you know, that smart hockey player, the hockey player's hockey player. Um, It wasn't, you know, any of the the names and the players that we've gotten used to seeing in those sort of situations over the years. Um, Yeah, there was some internalized profanity there for sure.
0: You mentioned something that I find uh, very accurate and I think really interesting, and that is when you say this is not what would be expected. And let, let's start there because I think that if you're talking 10 or 15 years ago, Jake Evans might have been, we might have le- fairly been able to say to Jake Evans, you should have maybe expected yeah. that. It's the playoffs, it's, it's all at war, keep your head up. But the NHL for the last decade has been trying to reposition itself to get that stuff out of the game. And I think by doing that, it has told its players, you shouldn't expect those kind of hits anymore. So 15 years ago, this may be a very different discussion we're having, because I think that falls well within the rules of, of, of the day. Now, I think it's a very different game, which is why I don't think it was a good hit. Well, I mean, earlier in the game, you know, Corey Perry skates through the slot to make a pass,
4: and he takes an elbow to the face and the pass goes through, Canadians score a goal. But that elbow to the face gets picked up by the broadcaster saying, oh my God, look at this. Well, guess what? Like 15 years ago, that's the minimum price. That's the cover charge. That's the two yeah. drink minimum, getting an elbow to the face, skating <laughs> through the trolley yep. tracks like that, right? Like, like that's what it is. But like you have Scott Stevens waiting back there with his nose trap and like his hammer of Thor waiting to, to aim at your noggin. Like, no, you don't have that anymore. You can that's why players like Mitch Marner can be as exciting as they are because, I mean, outside the playoffs, obviously, but um, smaller players (laughs) dancing through the middle, um, creating offense that, you know, fast speed, skill, hands, all of those things because the game has changed that, you know, going through the middle, not that long ago, was supposed to be the most unpleasant experience, dangerous, the same as football back in 15 years ago. Like, like Ronnie Lott, if you went across the middle and Ronnie Lott was a yep. free safety for San Francisco 49ers, like you were not going to have a good Sunday afternoon. But that's Even changed. here in Hamilton, Rob funny.
0: Hitchcock. Yeah, Rob Hitchcock with the Ticats. Same thing Rob 15 Hitchcock, years absolutely. ago.
4: Absolutely, sure. Um, like that's changed. Um, and for a bunch of reasons. One is for safety. We know a lot more about repeated head trauma and the dangers associated there, and we're still learning about it. Um, but more than that is that ever so slowly, this game that changes... At a glacial pace. I guess I shouldn't use glacial pace because that pace is changing, too. But at a very slow geologic pace. Um, yeah, <laughs> the games change. So a lot of the stuff that was good, you know, considered legal back when you and I had hair 10,000 years ago, um, that doesn't float anymore. So, no, there was no reason that Jake Evans should have anticipated something like that
0: yesterday. This isn't yeah, And I do. Anymore. No. And I do think that 15 years ago that the, the, the comment that Jake Evans should have been ready, uh, whether you like that kind of game or not, I think that that would have been a fair comment to make at that time, because that's how the game was played. The game has, it has taken a while, but the game has changed. And, and you're right. I don't think that he realistically should have expected that because that's not what the game is right now. So that brings us then to what is going to be the big question. I've been, even as we're sitting here, because that I've noticed so far, there has been no decision on this, unless uh, George Paros, who is the head of, or the czar of discipline, sort of, for the NHL, unless he's made a decision that I've missed. Um, Lots of people waiting eagerly to see what the NHL will do about this, because to say the NHL has been all over the board on discipline, I think is... um, is probably still understating what the discipline has been in the league over the last number of years.
4: It's the wheel of justice, right? It's take a spin on the wheel of justice. So, you know, what could be two games here is eight games for Kadri. Qadri. Um, I, I think, you know, there are people who say that, okay, this is charging um, that, you know, this was a clean hit. There are people who are arguing that this was a clean yes. hit, that Absolutely. To feet, shoulder to chest, like, There are old hockey people who are saying, you know, legally speaking, maybe this is a game because it's a 190-foot charge. Maybe it's two games. But I think, like, anybody who cares about this game and this game surviving, um, and I don't say that lightly, that's not hyperbole, Scott. For this game to continue, um, that has to be punished, and that cannot be in the game anymore. The the celebrated hits of Wendell Clark going behind the net against St. Louis and basically ending Bruce Bell's career – with a highlight reel hit that's become like snuff film for people who love the Don Cherry's rock'em sock'em. Like that can't exist in the game anymore. Because what you're gonna have is you're going to continue the erosion of the game at the grassroots level. That people are gonna see this and say, Holy crap, there's no way I want my daughter or my son to be a part of a game where you can go headhunting. Because you know what? It's just a game. And this stuff does trickle down. So unless it's unless it's eliminated from the game at the top level um, it's going to do a disservice for the game at all levels.
0: What about the NHL, though? George Perros, and again, he i mean—he came under enormous fire for a decision or a non-decision, basically on a situation involving Tom Wilson a few weeks ago, and then decided to go the other direction and come down like crazy on Nazem Kadri, which again raises that wheel of discipline as you describe it. Wheel of justice. Is this God, the wheel of justice? Wheel of justice. What did wheel I say? What did I say?
4: Wheel of discipline. I mean, it's fine. Oh, okay. <laughs> we, can, we can talk about it when we trademark this thing. But yeah, wheel of
0: justice. I think is a bit. I sad. just wanted to make sure I didn't say wheel of fortune. Just that, you know, simple thing. Wheel of misfortune. Um, is, is this is this one though going to be the? Maybe we should have said this before, but is this going to be the defining decision for George Paros about whether or not the league's discipline has any kind of credibility or not? Uh, you can say that, but then there's going to
4: be something else in the Vegas series. There's going to be something else. Like there's always something, right? And it's it's never going to be one thing. It's always going to be an accumulation. So like he could he could give Shifley a game, he could give Shifley a five hundred dollar fine. He could give Shifley a gift certificate to Red Lobster. Like we just don't know. <laughs> and that's part of the problem is that there's no standard, it seems like. So that's what we're talking about. When we talk about defining eras, we talk about, you know, Brendan Shanahan and the Shana band, you know, when he held that spot. Like it's, it's, it's the era that they're judged in. And the problem is, is is it doesn't look like anything that's consistent. When you, when you look at suspensions and you look at punishments, it looks like a roller coaster. It looks like a stock market ticker. Like there is no rhyme or reason, or it's very, very tough. I should say to discern a rhyme or reason to some of these decisions.
0: And the irony of this is like, there are people, you're absolutely right. Go Anyone who wants to can go on Twitter after we're done talking And there are people adamantly arguing that this hit was absolutely clean. I mean, vigorously arguing, there was nothing wrong with it. And those who are arguing at the other end that this was one step short of homicide. And there's not a lot of space in between. It seems like most people are either end. Um, But the reality is, if you don't do something, well, if you do something, then some people are going to say you're ruining hockey. If you don't do something. Who knows what mayhem happens? If the league does not look after this, who knows what mayhem happens? Because now the Canadians feel like they have to, if the league's not going to look after the players, we got to do it.
4: Well, and they've already sort of hinted at that, right? And
0: it it really does. More than hinted. The, said it directly.
4: Well, no, I mean, they say we're going to make life miserable
0: um, for
4: for Shifley if he's back this series. So, <laughs> I mean, that harkens back to the the, the the Moore Bertuzzi where, you know, blood vengeance was being promised and then delivered on. Um, you have to decide if you're a fan of this game. What kind of game do you want? Do you want a game where somebody can take a run at Dean McCammon from fifteen yards away and just knock him into oblivion? Do you want Wendell Clark on Bruce Bell? Do you want Scott Stevens on Paul Korea? Do you want Scott Stevens on Eric Lindros? Like like those are two Hall of Fame careers that were you know almost completely derailed. Like, do you want that? Like do you want do you want head injuries to take away? real talent from the game, right? Like, okay, so it's Jake Evans this time. What if it's Connor McDavid next season? What if it's Austin Mm. Matthews next season for something that's what it's not necessary. It's not part of the game. He wasn't separating the puck from the puck carrier, which was the whole point of having hitting in the first place that was predatory. And does that have a place in the game? And if you're going to say yes, then that's going to lead to one kind of sport and it's going to rot away the grassroots going to make parents make the decision at a very young age to say no this is stupid and they're right by the way and you can revert back to ufc on ice which is what it was all that long ago
0: okay so we can agree or disagree and everyone listening will have their opinion on the idea of fighting in hockey and all the rest but
4: which is ridiculous when we know what the the growing there isn't it's like climate change denial at this point there is absolutely no reason for fighting in hockey when we know the damage
0: that this can do to the people who participate in it but would this have happened, leaving your point aside for a second, would this situation, this kind of situation have happened if there were enforcers still in the game? If Mark Scheifele thought, if I do this, some six foot seven, 260 pound guy whose skill is punching people in the face is going to find me. And would, would that deter him from having done this?
4: Um, I think that's that's always been a farcical um argument we had a game not that long ago where a las vegas player was injured by a pretty questionable run and guess who was on the bench ryan Reeves. did that this did that dissuade anybody no you can go back and look at players who have been cheap shotted all over the history of the league and there's always been a tough guy sitting on the bench well guess what guy still got cheap shotted like we still hold on and we still cling to this well wayne gretzky have dave simeco well great there's one, and it happened to be the greatest player in the history of this game. But no, having people on the bench whose job it is to fight—I <laughs> there's no statistical evidence. Like people still get cheap shotted all the time in this game. Um, when you have that era, and I don't—I I, want to call it the enforcer era. Every team had an enforcer. Well, guess what? Were cheap shots still around? Yes, they were, and we were in the enforcer era. So that negates the point entirely.
0: Mm. I, and see, I think we can end this debate. If the league steps up, I think the, the, uh, where this goes away is if the players believe the league is actually going to do the discipline and hand down discipline to protect them, I think you get rid of the need for the other stuff. If you know that the pl- the league will look after this, you don't have to look after it on the ice. If the players don't believe that the league is going to take care of business, that's when you end up with things moving back towards the tough guys. And well, we've got to look after ourselves then.
4: I grew up loving the Hamilton Steelhawks. I I wish I still had my original pennant like just a great old logo, right? Like it's, it's still one of the greatest logos in Southern Ontario sports. There was a ton of fighting in the OHL back then, man. How much fighting is in the OHL right now? Like minimal and it's on its way out and it's because they took a stand. So, you know, why do we still embrace that? Well, the NHL has its rules, but in the playoffs, you got to throw those rules out the window. Why do we have that? It's dumb. If a rule is a rule, It's a rule in game one. It's a rule at the All-Star break, and it's a rule in the Stanley Cup final.
0: It's a great question. It's a great question, because it's in no other sport does this happen.
4: It's the dumbest thing, and we embrace it for some reason, just because it's been handed down to us.
0: Sean, where... Here's the question that always drives me nuts. And, and like I have brought this up so many times and I, I think I've probably got it on a recording now. I've memorized the question because I'm always asking it, where is the players association in this? It represents both the players here. And yet every single time without exception, the players association comes to the defense of the person who committed the act and not the person who was injured or the victim. Where is the players association?
4: Yeah. I mean, until not that long ago, I haven't seen a survey for a while, but you know, it wasn't that long ago where the majority of players surveyed still favored fighting in the game, right? Like the, we can't always presume or project, you know, what we're talking about here is the same values that they hold necessarily in the dressing rooms. And I don't, I don't, I don't claim to say well, that anything I'm saying here is certainly not supported necessarily by any dressing rooms in the NHL, but I mean, that's part of the culture. And you know, we are entering an era, thankfully, where we are now free to question the culture around the game and point out its shortcomings and, you know, posit ways of making it better. Because this game is, <laughs> it's shrinking. It's losing its hold. Mm. And there are lots of reasons. Um, and if we don't start addressing them soon, um, you know, maybe not for our kids' generation, but not certainly long after that, this game's not going to have the same hold it does right now in this country.
0: Here's the thing for the Players Association. We always hear, or at least they don't say it directly, but the the perception always is the Players Association fights for the guy who's been the aggressor because they don't want suspensions because that leads to lost money and they don't want that. This is a financial thing that we have to protect the revenues. In the playoffs, you don't get paid if you're a player. If there was ever a time when the Players Association could take a stand for the victim... It would be right now because the, nobody's losing money if you were to have a players' association stand up for Jake Evans. But I, I, I yeah. expect no, that no, never. I,
4: again, like I don't. I'm not standing here saying Mark Scheifele should become, you know, the pivot point at which all of hockey culture changes. I'm just no. saying this is another mark. This is another entry in the ledger of you know instances where we can say this is where hockey really needs to start finding its path.
0: We got to go, but let me ask you one more thing. And I just this just dawned on me because you mentioned Scott Stevens. Uh, we see in our society these days a lot of people who are taking a position that statues of Johnny McDonald or Egerton Ryerson or others should come down because of their behaviors. They don't any longer jibe with our modern sensibilities. What should happen to Scott Stevens, who by his way of playing would not fit in with modern hockey at all? His play it would be considered predatory should 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 we be rethinking scott steven's place in this game as one example there's others but should we be well, rethinking I mean, there's, his there's place in this game games. i mean this game this game has evolved you know so far
4: like i mean there was a rover i mean there were there were stick swing yeah. incidents. i mean think of games in the 70s right like stories that we laugh at now if they had happened today we'd be gasping and there'd be criminal investigations like you throw a shoe with a fan or you climb over the glass and you start having brawls <laughs> in this like, like milbury yep Right. But that's the whole point. And that's what we're talking about is evolution isn't a bad thing. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about evolving the game past this sort of stuff because it has to be more inclusive and become a game like this. This was something else. This was this was kind of a frontier justice. This I mean, yeah, I mean, we, we still don't know a lot of how this is going to play out. So I don't want to dip too deep there. But, yeah, like it's a game and it has to evolve because it's always evolved. And if it doesn't, then it's going to get left behind.
0: Still, as we're talking, that I can see, still no decision from the NHL. That said, uh, you know, last time with a
4: segment so that they could make the
0: decision on an
4: informed basis.
0: Well, when Kadri was suspended, it was after the game had started. Right, the next game he was not playing, but they announced it partway through the first period. So maybe that's what we're expecting the Department here.
4: Department player safety is waiting for you and I to finish this conversation. No, I know. Then
0: they're going to no, sit
4: back in their leather chairs, nod, and say, "Yes, we are right," and move on- forward with this decision. Yeah
0: tip back the brandy snifter and light up the cigar and make their announcement in their rich Corinthian leather mahogany bound offices or something. Uh, Sean Fitzgerald, senior national writer for The Athletic. Listen, always love having you on. Thanks for taking a few minutes today. Thank you so much for having me. All the best.
1: The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.